Welcome to Fellowship. Whether you're at Brentwood or Franklin or watching online, we are glad that you could be a part of our worship service today. You know we're in the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter from prison to the church at Ephesus. In fact, Michael Easley spoke last week on Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, and I'm actually doing the same thing. I've come to apologize for his teaching and to uh, <laughs> correct some... Actually, months ago when we were planning this, we knew that it would be best to take the passage as a whole, so the teachings are interwoven, to look at it first from the perspective of the wife and then from the perspective of the husband. And I thank the Lord that Michael got the perspective of the wife, and I will look at it again from the perspective of the husband. Michael's law, Michael has learned a lot about being submissive. In fact, I was watching CNN, and there was a story about a man from Berlin, Germany. He took an unusual approach to bring peace to his marriage. CNN said that he was using an old air raid siren to stun his wife into submission. (laughs) This is what he said. His name was Vladimir. He said, my wife never lets me get a word in edgewise. So I crank up the siren and let it rip for a few minutes. It works every time. Afterwards, it's real quiet. He's 73 years old, has this 220-volt rooftop siren, which the police confiscated because his neighbors were complaining. It reminded me of uh, Rita Rudner's comment, I love being married. It's so great finding that one special person you can annoy for the rest of your life. <laughs> but I like McLaughlin's perspective when he says, a successful marriage requires falling in love many times, always with the same person. Some cultures have different rituals for marriage, different perspective on marriage. And many of them, you don't even get to choose the person that you marry. Yet in that context, the Lord gives instructions about marriage because marriage is his idea. Here in the passage that we're looking at, I realize that marriage for many people is a very painful subject. Divorce, separation, abuse... Some people struggle with the marriage that they're in right now. Some are not married now and wonder why not, if they ever will be. Yet the axis upon which our lives turn are not our culture or our experience or our past or tradition. It's God's word. It's God's perspective. We are called by God to be devoted and to honor marriage from his perspective. So with that in mind, let me read the passage again. For us this morning. Follow along if you will, I'll read out loud, and then we'll dive in. Beginning in verse 22 of Ephesians chapter 5. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, the body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit. To their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. 
In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, for they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Ephesians is a fascinating book. As you remember, the Apostle Paul is in prison in Rome. He's heard about some false teaching in Colossae particularly, and in the whole Turkish area, Asia Minor area. And so he writes this treatise. The first three chapters, chapters 1, 2, and 3, are doctrine, the foundation for what he sees as the Christian faith. And then in verse 1 of chapter 4, he has a therefore, and then chapters 4, 5, and 6 is the application, the practical outliving of the doctrine that he has given to us in those first three chapters. It's the so what and the now what. For me, the key passage is found in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22, 23, and 24. Verse 22 says that you take off the old person. You're a new person in Christ. You take off the old person. It's an intentional decision that you make to be different. And then secondly, he says you are renewed in the spirit of your mind. You have a new mind. Doesn't Paul say in Romans chapter 12 that we are not conformed to this world, but transformed how? Right here, right here. And then the third step is to put on Christ. The terminology, of course, is clothing. The idea is that we put on the clothing of Christ. And that is we live in such a way that what we say, what we do, is Christ, exemplified by Christ. What Christ tells us to do, he empowers us to be able to do it as well. All that becomes the backdrop for putting it into practice. It's not God saying, I hope you can do this. I hope you're strong enough and smart enough. That's not what he's saying. Whenever God gives us something to do, remember in Philippians, which he also wrote about this time, Work out your own salvation, for it is God at work in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Not only to do it, but to want to do it. We just don't access that as much as we should. Here in this chapter, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, he says to live in love, to walk in love. And then he goes on to say, be imitators of God. Now, that's a high bar. Be imitators of God. In verse 8, he says, live as children of light, so that in a world of such darkness and despair, we live in a way that gives light. And then in verse 15, which begins the section that we're looking at, he says that we are to live in such a way that we have wisdom, we live wisely. And so it's no secret that he focuses so much on the people that we interact with all the time, the people with whom we are most intimate, that's our family. That's where wisdom begins, as we interact with people and the world. This portion today focuses specifically on how we follow Jesus. We please God, we live wisely with them. And of course, it focuses on marriage. God takes marriage, the covenant of marriage, very seriously. Our culture, it's becoming more and more a convenience. But God's perspective has been and always will be that it's a covenant. Now, whenever we look at the scripture, we want to know what it meant, because whatever it meant is the basis for what it means, right? 
So we want to know what it meant. When Paul wrote these words, what was the cultural perspective of marriage and family and women in the world? Well, in the first century, there's a collision, you know, of three cultures, very multicultural, the Greeks, the Romans, and the Jews. And they all had different perspectives, but they all pretty much had the same, really the same impact on the way families and marriages were lived out in that first century. For the Greeks, well, Demosthenes summarized it this way. This is kind of an offhand comment of how the culture was. He says this, well, we have prostitutes for the sake of pleasure. We have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation. And we have wives for the purpose of having children legitimately and of having a faithful guardian for all our household affairs. So marriage, the idea of marriage is companionship, fellowship, and love, uh, not going to happen through the Greeks. In fact, Socrates was to have said, is there anyone to whom you entrust more serious matters than to your wife? And is there anyone to whom you talk less than to your wife? The legacy and the practice of the Greeks were that home, family, and faithfulness were non-existent. The Romans were not much better. In fact, they were a lot worse. Seneca writes that a woman married to divorce and divorced to marry. He noted that people will mark the times of their past by who they were married to at the time. Records show that it was not uncommon for a person to have been married over 20 times during their lifetime. That's a lot of weddings. And of course, the Jews had a low view of women. You know, the man's morning prayer, the Jewish man prayed every morning. He thanked God that he had not made him a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Trutza, the historian, says, a woman's rights were few and her obligations were many. Legally, she was regarded as her husband's property. According to Jewish law, adultery was the most serious violation of a marriage or betrothal, unless you were a man. A husband's infidelity was not really adultery. It's just what a man did. It didn't matter among the Jews or the Greeks or the Romans or the Egyptians or the Hittites. I mean, Rabbi said that a, a man, a husband, could divorce his wife for just about any reason that he wanted. If she spoiled his dinner by putting too much salt, she was out of there. If she walked in public alone, or she talked to men out on the street. One rabbi actually taught that a man could divorce his wife if he found another woman more attractive. He could therefore basically say, my wife is defective. They're all, believe it or not, interpreting Deuteronomy 24.1. Thought they were giving biblical applications of that passage. And of course, women had no rights in divorce at all. A husband just had to have a statement of divorce and hand it to his wife in front of two witnesses, and it's done. It was done. The first century was a bankrupt period for marriage, for family, and for women. William Barclay says this, It is impossible to exaggerate the cleansing effect that Christianity had on home life in the ancient world and the benefits that it brought women. In fact, there's three places in the New Testament where God gives us a perspective of how our home life is supposed to be. And this was striking and startling. It was countercultural at the time. And we read it not only here in Ephesians, but in Colossians chapter 3, and from the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3. 
Now, Dr. Easley talked us through this passage last week and pointed out a lot of the exegetical perspectives, a lot of the background and the marriage ceremonies and so on at the time. So we won't go back over that again. But he also talked, uh, spent some time talking about the most misunderstood concept of the text, and that is the wives submitting to their husbands. And he pointed out rightly that submission is not a personality characteristic. It's a response to this truth, to this truth, that God holds the husband responsible for the family and its well-being. Men, we are responsible for our wives and our family and their well-being. And as believers, we are responsible for their spiritual growth, their spiritual well-being. We initiate, we lead. Submission does not mean inferiority at all. In fact, it implies equality or even superiority, or else there would be no need to submit. But the truth is we are Responsible. And those of you who've worked in management or with people, you know if you have more than one person responsible, then nobody's responsible, right? You spread it out, it doesn't work that way. When I was at Bryan College over in the eastern part of this state as president there, um, it's a while ago, and, and my first early years there, students did not have phones in their rooms. They, they don't have now because they all have cell phones, but they certainly didn't have cell phones then. So what you had, some of you remember this, at the end of the hallways at your college, there were, cell, there were uh, pay phones. And if you wanted to get a hold of your son or daughter, you called pay phone number and hoped that one of the other students would answer the phone and go find the, your son or daughter to talk to. Well, we moved phones into the rooms, into the dorm rooms. And of course, there's two students and one phone. And so we asked Bell Telephone if they would bill each student separately. And they said, we can't do that. He said, well, what if one student doesn't pay? So that's the problem. How do you cut off half a phone? I said, ah, good point. So they said, we will appoint one person to be responsible, or they can volunteer, but we need one person responsible. And that's true, I think, of what God is looking at for us. In the, in the creative order, he has men, you are the head. You are responsible. But it goes beyond that. It goes way, way, way beyond that. When it comes to marriages and how they work, personalities really don't matter. Uh, even compatibility doesn't matter. Uh, Howard Hendricks, one of my great mentors, um, used to say that compatibility is really not all that important in marriage. It depends on your attitude. You can be 99% compatible, but if you handle that 1% wrong with defensiveness and anger and so on, you can have a miserable life. But you can be 99% incompatible but if you handle it with deference and humor and love, it'd be great. When I was in grad school, Lynn and I had um, some psychological tests taken just because they were free. We thought figure these out. And um, it was pretty interesting because we found out that in all of these tests that we are not supposed to get along at all. We're not supposed to be in, in this work, working together or in personal relationships. We're not even supposed to be in the same building together. <laughs> we are so different. Yeah, I love that gal, and she loves me. We've had great marriage just because I don't take myself seriously, and she doesn't take me seriously either. So we're able to go through life in a good way. In fact, I love the fact that she is so different. I love the fact that I get a little irritated because what's, the way she does things is so different than mine, and I realize it's not necessarily right or wrong. It's just different, and usually she's right. And if I get angry or irritated, it's usually... My selfishness that don't, she's not here, so I can say it. it's usually my selfishness that is the reason for that. 
So the, the reality is that as we, as we think about how you do the nuts and bolts of your marriage, it's going to be different for every couple, and you work that out with love. I, I've, done, uh, oops. I've done a lot of premarital counseling for hundreds of uh, college students as they're looking to their future. And about one in four has a very strong-willed woman marrying a guy who's very passive, very quiet. And I'm sitting there thinking, I know who's going to do the checkbook. I know who's going to decide where they go out to eat. I, you know, this. And the guy is excited about that. He's happy that's going to happen because that's his personality. But he is still responsible. He is still responsible. He's called by God to lead. There's a great movie called Shall We Dance? Not the Richard Gere film, but the original Japanese film that came out in 1996. On Netflix, you can see it. Shall We Dance? If you know Japanese, it's great. If not, they have English subtitles. The reality of this particular movie is it's directed by uh, Masayuki Suo, who's, who's a great Japanese director, but it tells the story of this shy middle-aged guy who's an accountant. And every, every night as he goes back home in Tokyo, he's on the commuter train, and he looks up at this one particular stop, and he sees this ballroom dancing studio, sees the people up there. And his life has kind of become mundane, and he thinks, oh, wouldn't it be great to dance, you know, and so on. So one day, he gets off the train and goes up, and he timidly signs up to take ballroom dancing lessons. Didn't tell his wife. The story is great. You ought, you ought to watch it. And one, after, um, after a couple weeks, he has one particular instructor. and She's a very strong-willed woman. And as they move around the floor, she gets more and more frustrated. And after a few minutes, she stops. She throws up her hands. She says, you must lead. I follow. If you don't lead, I can't follow. And when she said that, I thought, there's probably a lot of women who'd love to say that to their husbands. But don't. In fact, this is kind of the idea behind Cindy Easley's book on submission entitled Dancing with the One You Love, Living Out Submission in the Real World. The leadership that God calls us to, men, is, of course, one of caring and tenderness and Christ-centeredness and togetherness. It's God's ideal. And God's prescription and commands on marriage are not limiting, but they are freeing. Freeing. So let's talk about two perspectives real quick on this as it relates to the men. First is the position of the husband. We are called, we are called to be the head, the head of the women. I'm blessed to be able to speak around the world, and I was speaking in Kiev um, to 250 educators. And... Um, talking about morality, worldviews, and so on. And uh, some of them were Christian. Most of them weren't. And it was fascinating. I just love that kind of thing. And um, uh, the evenings were free during the week, and a group of them came to me, about four of them came to me and said, would you, would you talk, give a lecture on the Christian perspective of family? And I said, well, sure, when? Tonight. Oh, tonight. In an hour. Okay, it's an hour. So I figured there'd be a couple dozen people. Well, all 250 showed up for this. So I talked about marriage and family from God's perspective and so on, and then took questions, uh, which is always fun to do. Um, and one of the questions was from a lady who was a Christian, and she said, my son, 16 years old, had just come to Christ. 
And she, like most women in the Eastern Bloc countries in Russia, is, is divorced, single mom. And she says, how do I help him grow? Well, I gave a few uh, suggestions, and I said, probably the best thing he needs is to find a mature Christian man that could help mentor him, spend time with him. Well, when that was translated into the Russian, everybody broke up in laughter because they thought I was telling a joke. A Christian man, a mature man, mentor my son. You've got to be kidding. Those don't exist. And I've spent many, many, many trips over in the former Soviet Union and to see what communism has done, not only to the family, but to men. It's tragic. It's tragic. The husband is the head, the initiator, the one responsible. Some will say when you say the man is the head, it's no big deal. Remember the movie My Big Fat Greek Wedding? Maria Portokalis assures her daughter Tula that she can change her husband's mind about allowing Tula to go to college and leave the family business. And this is what she says. Yes, the man is the head, but the woman is the neck. And she can turn the head any way she wants. (laughs) But what's striking and startling, and even a little upsetting for us men, is the Apostle Paul says that the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head the church. No mention of the neck, okay? As Christ is the head of the church. Now, whenever we see analogies in Scripture, or just analogies in general, realize that the analogies are only focusing usually on a small part. It's like the woman said that her husband uh, is just like Elvis. And I thought, well, can he sing? Can he dance? Is he cool? And she says, no, he's overweight and has big sideburns. <laughs> That's the later Elvis, obviously. And even, remember, verse 1 of this chapter, be imitators of God. Now, what does that mean? I mean, obviously focus on a certain perspective of what we see in God and his nature and relationship to us. Same thing here. In the infinite ways that Christ is the head of the church, God is focusing on two things. He's not focusing on saying that the husband is the Lord and Savior of the wife, the sovereign authority in all matters to be worshipped and obeyed without question. No, the first is that Christ sacrificed everything for his bride. Everything for his bride. So that she would be set apart, radiant, pure, God's eternal plan for all of us. The second is, not only is the church his bride, but he changes the figure and says, the church is his body. We are all parts of the body of Christ, right? 1 Corinthians 12. And he uses these two as the models for how we as husbands are supposed to lead our wives and family. So here's the responsibilities of the husband. From this position, the responsibilities are clear. Husbands, love your wives. He says it four times. Husbands, love your wives. You don't find this in the Old Testament where husbands love their wives. You don't find this in the rabbinic Jewish literature. You don't find this in the Koran. It's here. Because this is the very heart of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Husbands, love your wives. Four times he says it. Verse 25, twice in verse 28, and then at the conclusion of this section in verse 33. Husbands, love your wives. 
loves that word again. The greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strengthen your neighbor as yourself. This passage gives us three ways that we're supposed to love our wives, men. First, verse 25, as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Of course, the word is agape. The word which means this, that we turn our affection and attention and concern to the person we love to do whatever it takes for their well-being and their delight. That's what agape is. You turn yourself completely to them for their good, whatever is best for them, whatever delights them as well. It is unconditional whether your wife submits, is submissive or not, regardless of how she responds. We love her. We really love her because that's how Christ loves us. That's how Jesus Christ loves us. How can we do any different for the one that God has entrusted as our spouse? And think about it. We as his people, we're not very faithful, loving, or obedient, are we? And oh, how he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. He's saying, husbands, that's how I want you to care for your wife. No matter how she responds. I read this the other day from Brian Chappell. He's talking about some friends that they have at his church. They have a fine house, sweet kids, good jobs, but his wife has an emotional, mental problem. She periodically steals from her family and gambles the money away. She's been to counselors, doctors, and pastors, but nothing helps permanently. Imagine, men, your own wife, you know, stealing from you, pawning objects of value, withdrawing money from the bank, denying it, lying about it. Every time she's stolen from her husband and ruined his future, he's forgiven her and taken her back again and again. Even when she gave up on herself and tried to take her own life, he was right there. Brian said he asked his husband why he didn't end the marriage. In spite of the pressure, many friends and even counselors and pastors said, this is not good. And what he said was courageous and simple. She's a good mother. My children need her. But more than that, they need to know the love of God. How can they know a father in heaven who forgives them if their own father won't forgive their own mother? Men, the challenge to love Christ, excuse me, is to love our wife as Christ loves the church, is startling, and he empowers us to actually do that. Secondly, we love our wives as we love our own bodies. We men, we care for our bodies as Christ cares for the church. Paul takes another step when he quotes Genesis 2, 24. You know, for this reason, man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they become one flesh, one body. So in reality, we are one. Remember when you were, were dating and courting and moving toward marriage, how you began to become really one in your spirit and soul and your thinking? You finished each other's sentences and so on, you know. But what often happens, men, for us is that when we feel bad about ourselves, when we are beating ourselves up, we will tend to do the same to the one closest to us, the one who's part of us, our wives. We'll be nice to everybody else, 
But we'll be mean and sarcastic and cynical with our wives because that's how we feel about ourselves. They're an extension of us. And for many, it's courageous and very strong to be able not to do that. To take that, on, that selfishness and insecurity and turn it inside out and still, and still love our wives. And thirdly, he closes a section with the command, now, in case you haven't gotten the point yet, you're to love her as you love yourself. You get it? You get it? A summary of what he's just said. This is really important. Love always has a goal. In the case of marriage, it's that God's plan and purpose will be fulfilled. Be fulfilled in our lives. And don't forget that these commands are in the, in the, the broader context of commands of how Christians are supposed to treat each other. Just in Philippians chapter 2, we are to consider others as more important than ourselves. Right? Our wives should be more fulfilled in her life and closer to Jesus Christ because she married us. That's a challenge. That's a reality. Well, let me jump over to a couple of things, men, I'd like for you to think about. First, how are you sacrificially loving your wife? I mean, sacrificially, what are you doing? I talked to somebody after the last service. He said, you know, we need to be thinking about how we can love our wives. I find myself thinking about a lot of things all the time. But unless we intentionally do it, the default is usually not good when it comes to love. How am I sacrificially loving my wife? What am I doing? Am I a giver or a taker in this relationship? I'm called by God to be the initiator, hence the giver. But you know, the more you give, the more you get back. And if you really want to be challenged, ask your wife how you are sacrificially loving her. Second, is your wife closer to Christ because she married you? Is she? And then I've got a third thing here because I think it's important. And wives, we need you. We need your help. Very honestly, it's difficult for us men sometimes to be vulnerable to be intimate about those things where we might sense failure. And we need you to not point out what we've done wrong, but let's, where do we go from here? Forget the past. Where do we go from here? We need to sit and talk about what it means to be husband and wife with Christ at the center. It's an important conversation to have. The first time, it's usually awkward if you're not doing those things, but let's, together, we're going to do this together. The uniting of the Spirit, the union that we already have, the reality that God has given you the power, if you want it, to be the kind of husband that is transformative, not only for your wife, for the family. What an incredible testimony this is to the world as well, right? So here's some things to do. First, I will think of creative ways to show my wife I love her every day. Every day. We take up our cross every day, right? God reboots his love for us every day. His mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. So we should as well. 
Now, you can buy books on how to show your wife you love her. You can Google or Bing it, and you'll get all kinds of great examples. But just those little things, and, and the big things as well. And you can ask her. The reality that we are committed to her is something that we have to affirm over and over, just like we do with our Lord. And then secondly, I'm going to talk with my wife about roles as one flesh and how I want God to be the center of our marriage. As I said, forget the past. Where do we go from here? So wherever you are in marriage, your relationship, whether it be joyful or whether it be a struggle, whether it be a painful past or whether you're too young to be married yet, we all have to have the same view of marriage, which is God's and what he has given to us. Many of you are familiar with J. Robertson McQuilk, who served as the president of Columbia International University from 1968 to 1990. Right at the height of his presidency, he resigned to take care of Muriel, his wife. She needed him full-time because of her Alzheimer's, early onset. Her health was fine, but she panicked when he was not around. It made it difficult even for him to go to the office. When he was trying to decide whether to care for his ailing wife full-time or not, he said it was a piece of cake. It was a no-brainer. He said, I made this decision 42 years ago when I said, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. And I believe that it wasn't really a decisive moment, but a lifetime of daily choices to live out a love for his wife. It's more than just a matter of integrity. It was the right thing to do, he said. If I care for her for the next 40 years, it will not be enough for all she's done for me. It's not that I have to, he said, but I get to. It is a great honor. Men, we have a challenge, but God does not give us a challenge without giving us the resources, the people around us, and his spirit. And as we make that decision, as we take that step, you will never become in the future what you're not becoming today. It starts that way. We make that decision. We choose. And wives, we need you to help us. Come alongside us. The scripture does not say for man to say to his wife, you've got to be submissive. It doesn't say to the wife, you've got to lead. Get with it, buddy. No. But together in love, we honor our Christ. Together in love, we have this beautiful, beautiful picture of marriage that God has given to us for his glory as a light to the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Oh, thank you. Oh, how you love us, Lord. I pray, Father, we will never lose sight of that. Most of us men in this room, most of these men that are listening to my voice right now, we really need you to take that step to initiate, to lead. And as faltering as those first steps may be, Lord Jesus, we know that as we do the right thing, you bless. We pray for our wives and our children, our family, and ask, Father, that you use us to be the men that you've called us to be. Give us the strength for those convictions, courage to make the right ones, and the sweet peace and grace to do and to say that which honors you. And for those who, who are living lives of bruised souls because of marriage failures and struggles, I pray, Father, that you will come in and bring healing and give them hope. 
For all of us, Lord, we want to serve you. We thank you for you dying on the cross for our sins so that we could have eternity stretching out before us. We are grateful that we are your bride. And now, Lord, we pray that what we do will be to your glory. For it's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, God bless you, everyone. Have an awesome day today in Christ.